You're listening to The Current Reality Podcast, where we talk about staying rooted in biblical reality within the current of modern culture. We are your hosts. I'm Michael Clary, and with me is Wade Thomas. We're both on staff at Christ the King Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, which makes this podcast possible. Um, If you'd like to ask a question or give feedback, you can reach us at currentrealitypodcast at gmail.com. We answer questions as they come in. And I haven't asked you for this before, but here's a favor that we want to ask of you. Uh, Go on to Apple Podcasts or whoever you do your podcast with and leave us a review. Uh, I know every podcast asks you to do that, but we mean it. Not everybody means it, but we really mean this. Um, We're very insecure. Yeah. (laughs) Say something nice so that we can – anyway. Um, Leave a review. Share the episode with a friend. And I want to give a shout out to one reviewer. Um, This is from Mike. 18402739 is uh, what the – (laughs) The review says on Apple, it says, great podcast that covers a lot of topics that many others do not address, including current cultural movements, as well as parts of the Bible that seem strange to modern ears. Hosts have great chemistry while not necessarily agreeing on all things, so differing perspectives are heard. I don't know. We we agree on Mm -hmm. most things. No, we don't. I mean, there's a couple of things that we may not Yeah, yeah, I know. But it's not like Did you see that Kanye West review? Oh, well, I, I, I was going to save that one okay. for later, but Kanye West is a big fan. Spoiler. But it's not like you and I are Alan Combs and Sean Hannity. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's more like uh, Sean Hannity and lesser Sean Hannity. Well, which one is – I don't know that I want to be Sean Hannity. Um, I mean, he's he's reliably cons- – yeah, is he even reliably – I mean, he's – No, 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 no. He's, no, he's no. conservative and – He's going to have uh, – uh, a man on who and call her a wo- call him a woman with uh, Caitlyn Jenner there, right? Oh, okay, so, yeah, yeah. I he, I don't know what he's conserving, but not. Yeah, I used to follow Sean Hannity, you know, quite a bit when back in back when it was Hannity and Combs. I'd watch that show uh, a long time ago, but yeah. Anyway, uh, review continues. Content is always saturated in scripture. Comes from a conservative reform perspective, but the show is always even-handed and fair, and doesn't try to score cheap points. Highly recommended. Mm. That's right. That's right. Well, Mike, one eight four zero two seven three nine. thank you for that review. Uh, so please leave us a review. And I, we've got an announcement for you. Um, you know, uh, some of you who are familiar with the show, we did a conference, King's Domain Conference, Clear Speech for Confused Age, uh, last April. And we're going to do another conference this April, 2024. If, um, if you want to just save the date, April 18 through 20. In 2024, the theme is gendered virtue, meaning there are ways that men and women mm. live out the Christian life differently. It's going to be brought to you by the Barbie movie. That's right. <laughs> oh man, I don't know how to. I don't know how to respond when you make those old funny yeah, comments. Sorry. I make sure I. We need a laugh track. Yeah, That's what we, we need. Because we need the old 1980s sitcom laugh track. Yeah. Or maybe we'll dig one up. Gendered virtue. Gendered virtue. The speaker lineup is stellar, though. I've. Uh, so this is two years in a row where I put together like what's my, what's my A team here, the the top speakers, and I go after them thinking that's ah, a long shot, but we'll see. And this I think is you've gotten every one both times. Every one. We're batting a thousand so far. So super excited about that. We'll we will reveal the names uh, soon in a future episode. Mm-hmm. Today's episode down with fundamentalism, or we could even say death to fundamentalism. But before we do that, Wade, how's your summer going? A um, few educational trips. We home educate, so we went to Fort Harrison outside Indianapolis. Um, 
I think that's about it. I mean, it's pretty. I, I have. They're all young. All my kids are, you know, under the age of twelve. So summer is filled with a lot of playing in, in a, you know, little inflatable pool that you buy at Dollar General and <laughs> pitching them wiffle balls for hours on end. And yeah, I mean, it, it, there's not a whole lot of stuff that would sound exciting to to be, podcast listeners. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They're probably hitting that forward fifteen second thing right now as I talk. They just missed. They didn't even hear me say that because they were <laughs> fast forwarding through it. Yeah, they're they're about to just abandon the episode. I, we don't want to. I don't want to test their patience any longer. I don't have anything exciting to share about my summer. I just uh, we haven't recorded an episode. We've, yeah, I've been traveling. Um, just our schedules haven't lined up to be able to record. So, Oppenheimer uh, came out. Yeah, I haven't seen it. I, I heard that there's graphic nudity, yeah, so, so uh, yeah. I'm disappointed by that. Me too. Uh, Barbie movie came out, and I'm, I'm waiting in line for that one. I'm, I'm sure wearing your your all pink blouse mm-hmm. and yep. uh, your high heels. Yeah, it was it was great. Uh, well, three hour biopic of a plastic doll. Well, let's uh, let's take down right. fundamentalism. Right. Death to fun- we're not going to take it down. We're actually uh, going to do the opposite. But uh, I'll kick it over to you. Yeah. Wade. So uh, Aaron Wren, who was at last year's conference, uh, what conference? Uh, the King's Domain Conference. Oh, that one. The King's Domain Conference here at uh, King's Domain headquarters, also known as Christ the King Church. Um, so Aaron is a good guy. Uh, I mean, I, I, I've only talked to him, you know, just at that conference. I've never really met him apart from that, said hi to him at a f- another conference once, but I've read his, his stuff for years. He had a newsletter he called the masculinist. Now he's reformatted it as sort of a sub stack and covering broader topics than just men's issues. Um, but he's a, he's a good conservative, um, dare I say evangelical, which we'll get into the the distinction between evangelical and fundamentalist as we go, but he's a good conservative Christian uh, who sees some of the fault lines that have been exposed in American Christianity over the last 10, 15 years, and then has become most famous for his three worlds framework, which is just a, a way of sort of identifying, boy, it sure, sure as a heck feels different to be a Christian now in 2023 than it did in 2000. Right. And then it did for my grandparents in 1960. What's up with that? Well, yeah. this three worlds framework is sort well, of. Well, negative world is. Yeah. A lot, you'll hear people talk about, well, no, here in the negative world. Right. That's what they're referring to. So he says there was a, uh, at least in the in the 20th and 21st centuries, there was a positive world in which, uh, for Christianity, in which the secular world or the wider American culture viewed Christianity positively. Then there was a neutral world in which secularism or wider American culture viewed Christianity neutrally. And then now since about 2014, it views Christianity negatively. It's a, it's a pretty helpful paradigm. Yeah. He made his mark with it. You can retire now, Aaron. Right. I think he's writing a book actually about it or. Oh, that's right. That's right. It. Um, yep. um, so Aaron's article here is the primary contention is um, that as Tim Keller and John Piper and some of the bigger names within evangelical Christianity age out, retire, in Tim Keller's case, go on to glory, go on to be with the Lord, uh, a reorienting of American evangelical Christianity is underway, and it's not a happenstance reorienting. It's not uh, things are just sort of occurring. It's a little bit more strategic, and the strategy is to shave off on the rightward side or or one side of the American landscape, shave off so-called fundamentalists, and instead towards the middle of the current evangelical Christian world, 
uh, have so-called conservative complementarian Christians, guys who read Gospel Coalition or write for Gospel Coalition, team up with more conservative or conservative-ish egalitarians, the people who write for and edit at Christianity Today, and let them sort of be the standard bearers for American Christianity going forward. Yeah, so when he talks about Big Eva, he defines those as new Calvinist leaders. So we've th- uh, this would be the Gospel Coalition as a as an organ of Big Eva or New Calvinism, the PCA, Acts twenty nine, Desiring God. Maybe I would include Ligonier in there, although um, I, I, they may not have quite the same prominence as the others. But the idea is that these guys are they're they're, they're the gatekeepers that can um, define legitimacy within the evangelical world. And one of the points that he makes early in this piece is that they punch above their weight class, essentially, and that while New Calvinism represents a minority, you know, a small subsection of the broader evangelical world, they do define legitimacy and set the boundaries within evangelicalism to a degree. And that's why I think his piece was significant, because we've all felt some shifting over the last few years, maybe uh, last seven or eight years, maybe since 2016, the election of Donald Trump. I felt it. I know you felt it. There's been something that a lot of evangelicals have referred to. They sense something is different. Something is changing. Different people have tried different things to uh, put put a finger on what it is. And what Tim Keller is always good at doing is just providing analysis, um, kind of objective analysis of phenomena like this. And then what Aaron Wren is pointing out is that Tim Keller, before he died, wrote a piece that laid out a strategy for how to move forward. And the strategy, uh, I I think the, the way that he described it was very simply swap out complementarianism, which is a, you know, traditional view of gender roles and replace complementarianism as a defining boundary of evangelicalism with anti-fundamentalism. And of course, anti-fundamentalism is a pejorative usually in the way that it's used. It's certainly not used very commonly as a, in a positive way or with fairness or carefully defined. So it, it kind of creates an environment where people can be discarded without really taking full account for what they believe. Yeah, so he's got in this piece, and we'll put the link in the show notes, but he's got in this piece a graphic from Keller's, um, it it started, I think, as an article and then got published as a book, but the graphic basically shows four zones of Christianity in America, and zone one, all the way on the left, would be what Keller would call fundamentalists, and I would be in zone one, and I, I would imagine most of the people in our church would be in zone one, and probably a lot of you would be in zone one. Zone two... Uh, was more evangelical, and he divided zone two, and and I don't mean evangelical as in believing the gospel. I mean not fundamentalist. Zone two was like not fundamentalist but still conservative. He divided zone two there in between people who were willing to work with egalitarians and people who were not willing to work with egalitarians. Uh, And then zones three and four, uh, egalitarian, and then ending with post-evangelical or essentially no longer believing the core tenets of the gospel. So if this were to, if this strategy were to play out, which Aaron Wren argues that it already is playing out at places like Christianity Today, if this strategy were to play out, uh, guys like Michael and myself would no longer be 
within. Right. We, we would not only not be invited to the conference or not be invited to the table or not be invited to the institution. Uh, in some ways, we would be the enemy of the table or the enemy of the institution. Right. And that that is very noteworthy because there's a lot of um, – There's a lot of the things that I hold dear theologically that I think are very important are things that would be considered fundamentalist beliefs. And so my my views of sexuality, um, which are are very normal um, up until, you know, the last 50, Mm -hmm. maybe 100 years. But, you know, traditional sexual morality um, is now categorized in this fundamentalist, uh, this camp. And what they're doing is saying, okay. Um, so, well, let me, let me uh, pause here and make another comment. Aaron wrote, Aaron Wren wrote a follow-up piece called Who is a Fundamentalist? And in a fundamentalist, um, he says, he defines it the way that it is typically used. And he, he quotes this Alvin Plantinga joke where <laughs> Plantinga yeah. said, a fundamentalist is some stupid SOB whose theological opinions are considerably to the right of mine. Um, and Plantinga's a good guy. He, he was being playful there. Plantinga yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he's joking around. But then he uh, uses uh, George Marsden, uh, who wrote on this as well, uh, historian. He he characterizes fundamentalism as uh, over-combative moralism, seasoned with anti-intellectualism, intense individualism, and an uncritical attitude toward traditional culture. Um, so it's so if that's how they define fundamentalism, then what the leaders are doing. And this is what I mean. Tim Keller wrote out this strategy, and Aaron uh, Ren makes a you know very he makes it very plain that Tim Keller very explicitly it's not hidden, it's not subtle, very explicitly made the case that the evangelicalism of the future needs to um, marginalize and push to the side those that would be considered fundamentalists and replace their seat at the table with not that fundamentalists ever really had a seat at the table, but replace them with uh, with uh, egalitarians. Mm-hmm. So you remove complementarianism as a boundary, and you say, okay, now we're going – and what, it, what essentially happens is a shift to the left um, to partner with people that um, are compromised on a very core doctrine of the Bible, of sexuality. And these are people that are in they're, – they're in these gatekeeper-type positions that have the power to define boundaries. Um, and so it's a pragmatic consideration of, hey, we to survive in the future, e- what evangelicals need to do is get rid of these pesky fundamentalists that embarrass us with their Bible doctrines or whatever they say. But, well, they get rid of these guys that embarrass us and replace them with doctrines that are more acceptable to the modern tastes of Christianity, which would be egalitarian. Egalitarian meaning women pastors are okay and that sort of thing. And men and women um, have equal authority in the home, and it is not that men are supposed to lead in their homes. Yeah. Uh, He quotes Moore here in this article. This might Russell Moore? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, not not Beth Moore or who are the other famous Moores? Roger Moore. He played James Bond, I think, once. Russell Moore. Uh, Many of us are rethinking who we once classified as enemy, Moore says, and as ally. Maybe the lines of division were in the wrong places all along. 
Those who hold to believers' baptism, for example, have more in common with evangelicals who practice infant baptism than with Latter-day Saints who immerse adults. That sentence by Russell Moore uh, is on page six. If you're looking at a hard copy, um, that page or that sentence by Russell Moore is fine. I do have more in common with an evangelical Presbyterian than I'm with a Mormon. Fine, but then he says those who disagree on how Galatians 3:28 fits with Ephesians 5 but who want to see men and women fully engaged in the Great Commission have more in common with each other than with those who would make gender either everything or nothing. So then that one sentence there, Moore says, those who disagree on Galatians 3.28, which I think is the neither male nor female verse, mm-hmm. how that fits with Ephesians 5, meaning wives submit to your husbands, but who, so they, I may have a, an egalitarian and a guy who, thinks men really are the head of their homes but they want to see they both of those two want to see men and women fully engaged in the great commission those two guys have more in common with each other than with those who would make gender either everything which i'm sure he would say is you and me even though that's not literally true it's important nothing right well it's a false dichotomy it's binary thinking that there's either michael and wade and like all of church history (laughs) (laughs) or radical feminism correct and russell moore's sort of positioning this as but we those of us who read christianity today and make up the middle of the bell curve of christianity guys wink wink nod nod we um have more in common with each other than either you know he'd probably call us theo bros or something either us radical conservatives or the gloria steinems of christianity yeah well it's a There's a line in this quote that you were just reading that has this feeling of inevitability where he says, a new generation of Christian men and women is coming. So this is the Russell Moore evangelical version of we're on the right side of history. History is marching on, and we are marching with it in the right direction, and we are moving away from those fundamentalist, backwoods, ignoramuses that are anti-intellectual, that are extremists. We're moving away from them. And even he gives a hat tip to egalitarianism in that next sentence. Do you see that next sentence? Mm -hmm. Yeah, go ahead. When it comes to teaching them how to stand together, teach. When it comes to teaching... And how to equip, I trust Beth Moore much more than the 2004 Russell Moore to show them the way. Yeah. That's a subtle hat tip to egalitarianism right there. Yeah. So what we're, what Aaron Wren is quoting um, is an article that Russell Moore wrote for Christianity Today where he essentially repents of the views that he held, yeah. uh, in, I guess, 2004. So that's... 19 you know, years ago. Yeah, 19, 20 years ago. And he, he published a paper for the Evangelical Theological Society called After Patriarchy, What? Um, and it was a very strong um, essay about the, the underpinnings, the uh, patriarchal underpinnings of Christianity. And that's, he's not wrong about that. At least the 2004 version of Russell right. Moore is not wrong about that. Because headship is masculine, redemption is comes from Jesus Christ, who is who is a man. Um, but now he's been taught and equipped by Beth Moore, right? And he's better. He's yeah, I mean, repent. this is Longhouse Christianity here, where like he's got a woman that is that is kind of showing him the way, and he's following along behind, letting her tell him the true way of true Christianity. But the thing that is important for for our listeners that I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, we would assume a few things about you, and that is that you're 
theologically conservative, and that um, you're you, going to leave a five star review. You're going to leave a five star <laughs> review um, that you think Wade and I are funny. Mm-hmm. Um, you enjoy our jokes. No, but these are the things that these are the things that are um, that are true of this audience. And what's important here is that. Aaron Wren has demonstrated that Tim Keller laid out a strategy, a roadmap, that announces to evangelical leaders that control seminaries, that control publishing houses, that control prominent websites like Gospel Coalition, conference speakerships, church planning networks, and all of all of which that are aligned with New Calvinism, mm-hmm. especially would certainly look to Tim Keller as a uh, you know as as a father figure and you know a man to whom we should listen and follow. Even the ones who aren't Calvinists would look up to him. Yeah, Tim Keller uh, Tim Keller has broad appeal. Um, he is a very talented man. Um, but the but people are looking to Tim Keller mm-hmm. and what he wrote. And what he wrote explicitly is we need to shift the center of evangelicalism to redraw the boundaries, possibly even with new institutions and rebranding. And we need to exclude complementarianism from the new way forward that Russell Moore refers to as a new yeah. generation of Christian men and women is coming. And so those those of you who are like me and who are like Wade, who believe, hey, sexuality is an important topic, um, that the gospel is the gospel is shaped by the redemption of Christ and masculinity being a head you know, the headship of Christ being a masculine calling. These things being important doctrines, the leadership of the church being um, m- Biblically qualified men, right. the headship of a home being a loving uh, husband who is leading his family, and uh, those beliefs are being excluded from evangelicalism. Um, not saying I don't think that they would go so far as to say these are no longer welcome. But the writing is on the wall because if you believe that, you have now been branded a fundamentalist, right. and we are anti-fundamentalist. Therefore. What is currently, it, it's kind of like this is this is a way to massage it in to evangelicalism. Currently, it's like, hey, you're welcome under this big tent that is being refashioned. That will have people who think you are abusive, uh, right. backwards <laughs> fools. Yeah, they're so, going to be in the tent too. Yeah, but, but, yeah. So right now, you're welcome there. Uh, we're not kicking you out, but you're you're in there. But you're considered a fundamentalist. Right. Now, the, the complementarian and fundamentalists aren't necessarily equated, but to swap one out and swap the other in, it is, it is a way of subtly indicating that this view is no longer welcome. And I would say it's, it's not welcome because it's no longer fashionable. As our culture has grown increasingly feminist, it's moved in a more feminist direction. It has been for, for a long time, but it is becoming more overtly so. Um, so this will this will have an impact on the future of the institutions that shape what we currently know as evangelical Christianity. Yeah, and Ren actually, I mean, he, he's very fair. He, he's he's probably always fair. He's one of the most. Uh, yeah, he's even-handed. Yeah, uh, he says, "Look, you may not agree with this, but it's a valid strategy." This is a uh, uh, page eight. If you're looking at a hard copy here, Michael and I are looking at at printed versions because we're old. Um, but on on a uh, Page eight here, he says, this is definitely one to keep an eye on. I know some people will disagree strongly with this approach because they substantively disagree with the position. That's you and me. Right. But from a purely strategic perspective, it's a valid way to respond to recent developments. So that's Ryan's way of saying, look, and he himself, I'm sure, disagrees with the underlying assumptions that, you know, 
you know, I'm sure Aaron Wren believes in male headship in the church and in the home. But he's saying from a purely strategic standpoint, because egalitarianism is a, in the negative world in the United States, in the West, egalitarianism among men, men and women is an assumption that you it, – it's in everything. It's in everything. Sure. Uh, this – this is an attempt to account for that reality. Now, it's a it's an unbiblical one, I would argue, and it's a it's a harmful one. But I think his point is that's what they're doing. They're reacting to the world in a particular way. He quotes Keller as saying, um, "Generally speaking, the way forward is to a divide from zones one and four. Zone one is me and Michael. Probably all of you listeners. Zone four would be like Rob Bell. Hmm. Uh, Keller says divide from zones one and four." in different ways and bring both individuals and leaders and some older institutions most likely from the right half of zone two that's the squishier or more willing to work with egalitarian side of of evangelicalism and the left half of zone three that's the more conservative uh, egalitarian section into a new zone five so a new evangelicalism that's what keller's are advocating for right there a third way but a, a third way a, a fifth way, a fifth way. <laughs> then do the strategic initiatives launch the mission projects and start the institutions so ren writes this is about as clear as it gets he wants to eliminate complementarianism he being keller wants to eliminate complementarianism as a movement boundary and replace it with anti-fundamentalism new calvinism having already divided from zone four which is ex-evangelicalism rob bell emergent theology crazy liberal stuff so when i say this is the strategy i'm not making something up that's not really there it's explicit so that's yeah ren saying look in his in his last published material this is what tim keller advocated for yeah i well there are two things that i two problems that i have with this approach um the first one is that this is it's pragmatism and by that, I mean it is letting – I mean, as ministry practitioners, um, you know, Wade and I, we work for a church, and we have to think of practical solutions all the time. So it's, it is not anti-practical. Mm-hmm. It is pragmatism is a, is, is a mindset, uh, even implicit. A person may not even realize it. But what they are – a pragmatic mindset is allowing the – the practical issues to be in charge of the vision, direction, and all of those sort of things. It is it is putting the practical considerations first, which is essentially undermining your core mission, undermining the the very thing. The practical considerations are downstream of the the core mission. So, as a church, let's say as our church, for example, um, our core mission is to. Um, preach the true gospel, mm-hmm. to make disciples, to teach people to obey all that Christ commanded. The mission statement of our church is helping people to know, love, and obey Jesus Christ as Lord over all of life. Now, that that is our core mission, and we build an institution around it. You build a church around that to say, this is, what, this is why we exist. This is what we're trying to do. Now, let's say that um, you, you get to the point to where people – no longer are interested in those things, then it's like, okay, well, then we need to find – we need to preserve the institution. So let's let's change the core mission of the institution to meet the demand of the market. Right. That's pragmatism. 
And so basically, that's okay it's a, for a soda pop company. Right. It's not okay for a church. <laughs> Who says soda pop? Sorry. <laughs> Again, revealing my uh, old soul. But yeah, I mean that fine if if if, if you're. If you're Pepsi right, Cola, right. Uh, but not if you are the Church of Jesus Christ, right. where um, you practically want to do everything you can to reach people maximally, to be maximally effective. But you may never, there are lines that you can't cross, um, and those are lines of conscience, and those are lines of um, compromising the truth of the gospel itself. We're told to guard the good deposit. Um, that's what Paul says in Second uh, Timothy. So the, mm-hmm. this is a significant compromise. The, and, and I said there are two things I've already started to talk about the second, which is it is a leftward uh, move. Yeah. It is a, you know, it, it, is, it is a move to accommodate a market niche or niche, if you're pretentious, but niche as I say it because I'm from West niece. Virginia. I think it's pronounced niece. Niece. Yeah. <laughs> How do you say? I mean, I've, I used to, I used to, I've always heard niche and then I started hearing people say niche. It sounds vulgar. Niche sounds vulgar. Like, I feel like I'm going to get in trouble <laughs> when I say niche. <laughs> Man, that niche. <laughs> like, it just. <laughs> uh, okay, so niche. Yeah. yeah. But it's it's catering to a particular people because of market demands. That's pragmatism. And it it is, uh, it is revealing of what some would say is, you know, like this, this is what happens with institutional decline. They move is, left. Well, they move left, but they move left in the interest of self-preservation. And so you have the stated goal of the institution, which is here's our mission, here's our core values. But there's an implicit mission that nobody ever talks about, but is actually the preeminent mission of an institution, which is self-preservation. So there would somebody, you know, if, if they were forced to articulate it, I mean, the, it's like we have to exist before we can accomplish a mission, and we've got all these employees, we've got um, all this, all these assets. So we have to we have to keep things operational. And if we don't move left on this issue, uh, along with the culture to meet market demand, so if you're a church, what if our attendance goes down? What if our tithing goes down? Then we'll have to lay off staff. We have all these jobs at stake. We have to move. We have to change. If you're a school, we've got all these uh, teachers and faculty. We have to keep the lights on in this building. And so self-preservation becomes the controlling interest, but nobody says it out loud. I'm sympathetic to that because – and I think that an institution does need to take into account some of those practical concerns, but there has to be a point that you won't cross. And what I think is being outlined by this Keller strategy and that, you know, that Ren is describing here is, is a way of saying, here's how we keep the lights on, guys. Evangelicalism, if you want to keep this thing afloat, we've got to compromise on something. People don't care about complementarianism anymore. That that was a hot new thing back in the 80s whenever Piper and Grudem were in their heyday and wrote a book about it. Um, but now, you know, the new hotness is egalitarianism. The new hotness is the newest version of feminism. So we've got to we've yeah. got to let let this slide. I think that this will I guess it's what makes me a fundamentalist is because I'm I'm uncompromising on yeah. on matters that I think are of moral urgency. And that doesn't mean I'm rigid or inflexible on secondary matters. It's just that I think this matter, this particular issue is of such weight that we have to be uncompromising about it. So I I think a Christian must ask is it true first and then will it work second? You know, so we're we're primarily concerned with is this thing true yeah. or false? And then downstream of that, then we ask, okay, will this particular, what are the results? What are the, what's the potential impact of this 
church mission strategy or book that we're going to write or school that we're going to found or TV show we're going to produce or podcast we're going to produce or whatever. We ask first, is it true? And then secondly, what, what will the impact be? I think Russell Moore and all the guys at Christianity Today would agree. Like there are certain things that are so true or so essential in their trueness that they would not mortgage them. They would not. Yeah. But Ephesians 5 is not one of them. Correct. That's one that he'll budge on. Jesus being born of a virgin, I'm sure is not. I'm sure he would he would say, if you don't believe Jesus is divine, then I can't yeah. found a magazine with you or found an institution with you. Or um, We're saying manhood and womanhood, uh, and, and I, we don't even like the term complementarian anymore because it's – there's a, there's it's a lot just, of it. It, it. Yeah, it's squishy. Yeah, it's squishy. It doesn't account for the the actual Bible the way it's written. Although I owe, I owe a great debt to John Piper and Wayne Grudem certainly. Um, but complementarianism, or as we would call it, uh, the the patriarchal reality of Scripture and the world, those things are essential to human goodness, mm-hmm. and to to deny them. And to and to act as though women can be pastors or that men are not supposed to lead their homes yeah. is gonna it's going to harm the church and the world in in big unanticipated ways. Yeah, so here's here's where we can make it practical. Um answering the question, is it true? Yes, it is true. God calls men to be head of their home and to be biblically qualified men to be head of the church. Yeah. And and in society at large, there is something um, – it's like men take the lead. Right. So, okay, uh, but in this new framing, this new uh, way of putting together evangelicalism, we're going to say, okay, that no longer matters as a core belief. Now, egalitarian and complementarian, now we have eliminated this barrier between us. Let's go build an institution together. We need to appoint a president. We need to appoint a board right. of directors. We need to have policies. But who is going to get the de facto victory right. whenever you do that? The egalitarians are going to insist that you have representation of men and women at every area of leadership. Right. So now you have complementarians that have given away the farm because they have ceded their ability to even stand for truth. They've already, they've compromised at the principal level something, and they can never recover from that. Any yeah. institution that you would build on that premise is already fatally flawed, and it will inevitably become totally egalitarian. So it's a, it, that it is a compromise of a principle that is not just something that you would write on a statement somewhere and shove right. in a drawer. This has real, real consequences. And what what is being advocated is say we can we can draw new alliances and we can build new institutions around around this idea. I don't think Keller minded much because Keller is the thinnest of complementarians. Um, may God rest yeah. his soul. But he's, yeah. uh, he was not. This was not an area of strength for him. I think this was an area of great weakness for him. Um, yeah, and so I I, I think uh, what. What my evangelical elite brothers are missing here is something that I've seen said. I, I've, I've seen it put much better by Doug Wilson, but I'm going to do my best at it here. And, and I think Michael Foster, our friend Michael Foster, has said things like this in the past. Patriarchy is inevitable. That's right. It is inevitable. The way God made the world, men are going to end up leading most things. 
they are going to end up being dominant. So the question is not, will you have patriarchy, but what kind of patriarchy will you have? And if we build a, and I say we, because I'm covenantally connected to American Christianity, so whether I want it to move this direction or not, I'm along for the ride to some degree. Mm-hmm. If we allow for an American Christianity that doesn't exalt male leadership and call men to be the kind of men who are self-sacrificially leading well, we're going to end up with men leading anyways, but they're not going to be good ones. Yeah. I want, I want a Christianity that says, since men are going to lead inevitably, we want them to be virtuous, godly, courageous men. So let's work together to ensure that happens. Let's raise our sons well. Yeah, but if what, we, yeah I think it's the same as the garden. In the garden, you had Eve that sinned first and then tempted Adam and uh, he fell into sin. But whenever God came to the garden to call, uh, call them both to account, he was calling for Adam. Right. That's because it's not as though Adam had a job to do and he failed to do his job. He gave it to somebody else. He delegated poorly. It is that he was the head of his household. Yeah. And even though, you know, he he, he his failure was was one that cannot merely be dismissed as a, a as a function or a duty that he failed in, but he failed in a calling that he did not uh, embody. So if you think about um, churches that have men and women, um, you know, pastors. The men are responsible for that because they allowed it to happen, right. um, and there is a there is a unique way that 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 they will have to bear responsibility for that failure. Um, and I think the women who do it they they are in sin in their own way. Correct. Um, but it is it is the responsibility of the men, and that's that is why like even in a church where you have. You know, feminine or, or you know, women pastors. It is the men who allowed it to happen, and they are the ones that, if God were to show up and right. go walking through the yeah, know, the, the hallway not, of the church, he's going to be looking for the men. So, right. where have you guys been? What have you What have you done? He's not going to be asking where is Pastress Donna. Like yeah. he he's gonna he's gonna call the men of that church because we're responsible. And I think that's something, by the way, that uh, some of our it's a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's a worthwhile one. Some of our uh, Manosphere, red-pilled listeners. <laughs> uh, they, they. I think are some of them are missing the boat, and I've seen it. I, what do you? Well, what do you mean? So they, they're, they are irked by the idea that men are responsible in their families and in their churches, no matter what. They. Oh, you say they? They're, they're bitter. They're bitter, and they want to blame women for right, everything. Right, and so there is a reality too. It, it is not talked about enough that the majority of divorces in America are initiated by women. And that many of them are initiated for terrible reasons. Like that—that that is true. Terrible, as in not, legitimate not reasons. reasons. Okay, right? okay. Many, so terrible reasons, and that they should not have filed for divorce. Yeah, correct. Okay. There are many of the, I think, seventy percent or something of divorces in America are initiated by women. Yeah, I've heard that. And I'm sure that a good portion of them were initiated for stupid reasons, like you started reading books about finding your true self and figured you were gonna. Yeah. You know, I'm sure that happens. And yet, at the same time. M- I am responsible for whatever happens in the Thomas household, and so are you in your household. That's right. That that is a biblical reality. We can we can like it or not like it, but it's true independent of whether we like it. And so, I think if we allow, if we as a, as American Christian men allow evangelical Christianity to shed itself of uh, patriarchalism, 
shed itself of male leadership and we allow women to become pastors, we are going to be responsible for that failure in evangelical Christianity. That's right. Uh, and and we do it thinking that we're doing these women a favor. Yeah. I mean, there are probably lots of men who abdicate their God-called authority to women who then think that they are doing women a favor. And it's still sin. Yeah. It doesn't matter that you, ha- you may have had noble intentions. Yeah. If there's one thing that I think would be so – that would be a game changer is if in mass the women in our churches would um, – refuse to take up these positions. Yeah, that's a good if the, point. If the women would would um, use their feminine influence to encourage the men to, to lead and encourage these men in their leading, because it's a muscle in, in many respects, it's muscles that men haven't exercised. Because they think, well, the best thing to do, the way if I want to honor a woman, I'm going to appoint her as a leader over me. And that, that God did not design women for that, that is not healthy or good. Um, and so to, to start to assert leadership in a healthy, godly way is going to require the strength of men who've grown weak in this area and the support of women who have been accustomed to a totally different way of operating. But if the women were to say, I, I want you to lead, I, we, we need you to, your leadership, and we're going to stand behind you, and we're going to support you and submit to you while you, mm-hmm. while you clumsily develop this leadership gift. Um, I, I think that could that could make a big difference, but all of the cultural messaging yeah. is in the other direction to the point to where to not cave to that is regarded as misogyny. Yeah. I, yeah. So we we are at fault as as men and as a American Christian men in the church. We're at fault for for what has cropped up, which is this latent feminism that has latent feminism and egalitarianism that has produced this uh, what I would what I would say is a borderline catastrophe if we end up moving down this road. Um, at the same time, we also need to preach boldly that women should wives should submit to their husbands and that the men and women of the church should submit to their male pastoral leadership and should be held accountable when they don't. Um, Paul commands women to obey their husbands without any embarrassment about it. Yeah. And we need to be willing to do the same. And at the same time, then calling men to be willing to step up and yeah. take that leadership. So obviously we know we've, we've done this a lot. You and I have talked a lot on the podcast about uh, how everybody is, is bold when it comes to calling men to stand up straight and yeah, man up. Right. And nobody's willing to call it feminine sins. And so we, we still stand by that, but here where I think we're trying to, give the sort of the the fuller picture of male responsibility for whatever happens and in american christianity if we end up falling down this this hole uh it's going to be on our watch yeah well i think if 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 this plan um i don't these these things happen in rooms that we don't i've never been invited to this room (laughs) whatever room this is where these things are being hashed out i've never been there and i don't expect to ever be invited i may have delivered a pizza to the hotel that the room (laughs) was lodged in (laughs) but uh, so this is where it's important because um we're we're you and i are in a baptist church um and one of the one of the blessings of baptist polity is the local church autonomy um that 
we're not autonomous from influence though right um so there's like no matter what so we're in the southern baptist convention whatever happens in the sbc um does not necessarily have any direct bearing on our local church body um we praise god for that However, um, the books that our people read, the podcasts they listen to, the, um, the seminaries that they may attend, um, these things influence us. Um, they influence all of us. Yeah. The evangelical world that is being discussed you know, by this uh, thing we're talking about here, these things will play themselves out mm-hmm. in ways that will have an effect. And so there is, a, there is a need for us to exercise a different muscle, and that is a, a muscle of um, – I want to say resistance. Uh, that that might be too strong a word, but maybe a better word would be um, muscle of independent thinking. Maybe active discernment. Yeah, discernment. It it is it is to know that okay, there's everybody's sinful. Everybody's there's flawed. There's compromise in anything that we might read from any Christian source, but to know in the future this is something that is likely to trickle down in the publications we read so it you know whatever your favorite publishing house is it it helps to know what's their bent what is do they what kind of material do they typically publish do they have an do they have an agenda now the agenda is being stated so anti-fundamentalism i think we should take a minute to 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 talk about the fundamental like define that a little more carefully because what Tim Keller being the uh, – now he's passed on, but now he was the the grandfather of evangelicalism, and he had influence way outside of his own tribe. He has said this is a strategy to adopt. We see it starting to happen with men like Russell Moore. We quoted him. Um, Russell Moore is editor uh, – Yeah, yeah, he's the – Editor-in-chief or – Yeah, I mean, whatever the top position at Christianity today is. Okay. So, czar. The czar, <laughs> the czar, the dictator of Christianity today. Um so Christianity Today is heavily under that influence. This will filter its way down. I've seen it in many seminaries. I'm more familiar with the Baptist seminaries, but we see this happening in um, you know all of our seminaries. So we to be able to detect uh, two things. One, complementarianism is out. So you're, I mean, I published a book uh, through Reformation Zion, and I published through them because. Uh, the publisher, the guy that runs the company, he is willing to publish material that right. the other publishing houses won't touch. And I'm guessing Lifeway wouldn't publish God's Good Design. Uh, no, and I I, uh, I inquired of Lifeway, and I inquired of Crossway, and I did not get a response from either. Um, what if you had called it God's Good Design for feminism? I don't know. <laughs> With like a lavender cover design. Or if I if I did uh, toxic masculinity. Yes. Maybe if I, I think yes. I might have gotten some calls yes. back on that. And it, yeah, it may be just because I don't have a huge platform like some of these other authors do, but I'm sure the subject matter is, is relevant to what they would choose. But the point being, it's that messages like the one I just published, and I had to go through you know, a smaller publisher to get it done, will be even less welcome because it's in this now – uh, marginalized to use a mm-hmm. critical theory <laughs> it's like it's a view that's mar- we, ought to, we ought to start doing that we ought, to, we ought to start talking about us, ourselves as that we're a marginalized oppressed minority. I refuse to be marginalized <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> but, but you're not going to find material like right. that so we have to find teaching on this and other, and other sources so complementarianism is out and that's going to be that's going to trickle down over the next 20 years in every evangelical institution if they follow this course 
At the same time, anti-fundamentalism will be ascendant. Right. So the views that I hold will be increasingly labeled as fundamentalist, and there is a roadmap. It's like, hey, this is this is our posture towards that because fundamentalists were embarrassed of them. Right. They do harm to the name of Christ when. Yeah, you you might have your fundamentalist idiots, but every ideology has their idiots. Atheism has its idiots. Um, egalitarianism has their idiots, people that they're embarrassed about. Everybody's got your crazies. That's not who we're talking about. We're talking about biblical fidelity um, because the scriptures tell us where our priorities should lie. So, yes, I, you want to. I can read a little bit of this. Who is a fundamentalist? Where Wren describes. The, yeah, there, well, there's one. Um, it's the second and third paragraphs there that I think those were the most. Um, yeah. Okay. These are the most. Uh, they stood out to me as extremely helpful. So here's what here's what Ren writes. I anticipate that whether or not someone is classified as not legitimate will primarily be based on whether they are perceived as a threat to the incumbent evangelical leadership, not which one which ones of Keller's zones they fall into or whether or not they are fundamentalist or hyper-conservative, properly so-called. Yeah, so, okay, stop there. So that's that's what I was just saying before you read that. Like, my views, it's like I am. I try to be very fair right. with people uh, that I view. I, try to, I am very critical of myself, critical of my own tribe. It doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't matter according to what Ren is saying, and I think he's right. All that matters is do I represent or do anybody – that would align with me. Do we represent a threat to the incumbent evangelical leadership? You are a flat tire on their bus. I love it when you do that, man. <laughs> yeah, I love it. So you're not, I mean, Ren's, Ren's uh, description of a fundamentalist uh, where he was kind of uh, given plan, I guess, playful, playful bit of speech there included anti-intellectualism and yeah. um, and you're not you're not anti neither am I we're not anti-intellectuals I classically educate my kids like I'm teaching them Greek we're not anti-intellectual anti over combative moralism right and and is that true of us I, I, I hope not I don't think we're overly combative uh, I don't think so um, we have strong moral convictions right we think abortion is murder but you know what they think they have strong moral convictions too about like they would about fundamental right oh yeah exactly <laughs> or like marching in a blm rally or something like they would have strong moral convictions too so i basically i'm agreeing i i, I agree with ren and i agree with you we're not actually the thing that fundamentalist properly defined would refer to and yet i'm willing to say i'm a fundamentalist in this sense in the way they are the way they're subtly defining it, yeah. Because I'm a threat. I mean, not me. Nobody knows who I am, but people well, it, like me with more Twitter followers are a threat <laughs> to them. Well, I, so there's. I think the key is that it is, it is a pejorative. It is used as a way to dismiss somebody. I mean, I, I mean, just think about it. who do you know that you would call a fundamentalist and mean it in a positive way? I mean, there might be a there might be some instances, but. Overwhelmingly, the use is negative, and it's it's a way of characterizing somebody as a midwit. Yeah, they it's a synonym for Bible thumper or yeah, uh, shrill or I mean, like it's just okay. This person is over the top. They it's not no... somebody that you take seriously. Correct. It's it's the guy that's holding uh you know a Turner Burn sign with a bullhorn in right. the middle of the public. Uh, you know the college square, and so by labeling us with that, they say, like, "Oh, you're those one of those right. idiots," and it's a way of not engaging in the substance of what we have to say. 
Uh, he, he, right beneath that, I, I underlined this a little bit. He says, a fundamentalist, practically speaking, will mean anyone who threatens the incumbent power structure from, from the, the right. right. Yeah, from so you're life. not going to be a fundamentalist for being uh, crazy, uh, uber feminist LGBTQ guy. That guy won't be a fundamentalist, even though he's just as shrill. And What's ironic as... is like they truly are threatening the structure because it's right. the, those people from the left are forcing them to change the very way we define evangelical. And by the way, who's more anti-intellectual than the person who says that sex is assigned at birth? Yeah, <laughs> like, or, or yeah, like. Or that um, a man can breastfeed or right. give birth to or a child. Or get I mean, pregnant. It, it's stupid. That's about as anti-intellectual as you can be, but that is somehow not yeah. fundamentalist. Yeah, so so if he's right, and look, if Russell Moore were sitting here, I would implore him not to do this. Don't, like, don't, don't adopt this strategy and don't apologize for 2004 Russell Moore or apologize for 2004 Russell Moore's tone. Yeah. But he's not sitting here, so I'm speaking to you guys, and I'm tr- we're, I think we're trying to get you to see... Um, this is probably coming. We're interacting with Aaron Wren's material because Aaron Wren is usually prescient. He's he, he reads the tea leaves pretty well. Could you not use him big words? Oh, sorry. Um, he see future good. Why <laughs> <laughs> so, um, use right? <laughs> what, is, what, is, what is it that uh, what's his face says on the office? Uh, why use big word when small word do trick? That's exactly right. <laughs> I'll try to no more, no more <laughs> two-syllable words. Um, so it, I, we think probably, I think you and I both anticipate this is likely to be coming down the pike. This is likely the way things will will go. And so we want Christians to be aware of it because, look, you guys are going to be reading books that um, uh, Michael and I don't have a publishing house. And most, Yet. your local pastor. Yeah. Yet. We your want local to do pastor, King's Domain Publishing. That's now. true. But your local pastor is not going to have a publishing house, and he's probably not producing gobs of podcasts. Like you're going to be listening to, reading, um, seeing things by Christians that will probably, if if Aaron Wren, if the what he anticipates happening happens, will be from within this framework, mm. which means you're going to see things that will move you ever slightly to the left on issues of sexuality, or or at least on gender, and I, and I think the two are related. If you're egalitarian yeah. and you make room for egalitarianism, you are gonna be making room for acceptance of homosexuality. Yeah, and so course. I do think Christianity today, probably in 20 years, or sooner, <laughs> Not will be will be pro-LGBTQ, or at least making room for it. Well, they're already, I'm, they're already indicating at least an unwillingness to criticize it. Yeah, um, and that's that's one of the steps along a, a institutional decline. As you start out robust and solid, and then you start to be silent on key issues of controversy, um, yeah. while management and leadership change internally until eventually you make your way to be fully affirming of whatever that sin was that you were hesitant to criticize. I think that the relevance for for us. Um, you know, those of you listening, is to prepare yourself for the fact that what we value is going to be uh, considered embarrassing, um, and that that is part of the tactic. Um, there, there's one other little quote I wanted to read here from Ren's article. He said, "Defining someone as a fundamentalist explicitly or implicitly is one way to paint them as illegitimate and define them in ways that will make it difficult for them to acquire influence." Mm-hmm. Um, so I see a few things that we can do about that. One is um, to no longer um, 
don't be worried about whether or not you have influence in the guild with the people that are the power brokers. It's This has been a tough lesson for me to learn, and it's been a hard for me to really wrap my mind around the scope of it. But so much of our evangelical leadership is, is compromised in very significant ways. Um, Primarily in these sexuality arenas. Issues of sexuality in particular. Basically, uh, you know, the famous quote, where the battle rages. Right. Because um, Russell Moore would probably be strong on abortion, or at least stronger than he is on the sexuality stuff, I would think. Um, I'm trying to give him some credit. Like I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Okay. But but the point being is that um, the things that we see in Scripture um, that are important to us and that have some controversy in the world, those things are going to be areas that um, we will be seen as fundamentalists if we speak out on them. Um, so don't seek your legitimacy from the guild. Um, and don't expect for publishers, podcasts, books, media, whatever whatever it is that has the credentialing of Big Eva. Don't expect them to say things that represent your values. Expect that those things are more likely to come from your local pastor who has zero influence outside of his local church. Um, But second is that we need to build alternative institutions. And you can come sit at our table at Pizza Hut. You're not going to be invited to the the guild, but (laughs) Pizza Hut. Some little diner where we're uh, plotting to take over the world. You can come join us. Yeah, but my, that's why I mean that's why we started King's Domain. That's why I we're mean, doing the podcast. All uh, of this, Reformation Zion, right? They've published a handful of books. Yeah, well, I, uh, I think half a dozen, something so, like that. I mean, that I would imagine Zach, right? Zach is the guy. Mm, Zach Garris. Um, I, I, I've seen his stuff before, but I've not read anything he's. I've not read a book that he's written, but he, he, I'm sure he seems like a great guy, like right in line with us. Uh, I would imagine he started that because. Well, who else is going to publish this material? So, yeah. he wrote a book called Masculine Christianity. Great, I already love it. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, if you think of that, like, hey, Crossway, do you want to publish Masculine Christianity? Um, they're going to say no unless you add the modifier "toxic" to the beginning right. of the title. But it's, but it, you're just not going to get traction there. He should have um, just called it Feminine Christianity and then not changed a word of the book. <laughs> just the title, and just. <laughs> but if, I mean, if somebody, all right, all right, here, how's this for a title? Feminine Christianity, rethinking the patriarchy. Yeah. Now, you'd get a callback oh, yeah. from Zondervan yeah. or from somebody would call you back in the Christian publishing world. If you have masculine Christianity, that's old, that's boring, that's patriarchal, that's misogynistic. You probably beat your wife. So we don't want to publish that book. <laughs> yeah. And so I think your, your point is well taken. Like we have to, and, and for the lay people here listening, you know, like I've got a buddy uh, here in this church, a lay guy here in this church who wrote a novel and he's trying to get it published. And so some of you guys, you may have creative uh, Christian ministry that you want to see uh, reach the wider circles, and that's great. And you have to be okay with this. But for those of you who are just like raising kids or working a job, I, I think the point still applies. You're going to have to be okay being it, – it would serve you well and serve your future faithfulness well for you to be okay with being ridiculed yeah. and not – seen as i remember the high water mark of tgc new calvinism big eva and being a church planter right around that high water mark maybe a little bit after it and thinking that, you know some part of my flesh was really gratified by the fact that you could be a calvinist and a, and and believe in male headship and be cool you could be respectable i was like this is great it didn't cost me oh, anything <laughs> i rem- i mean i remember very specific thoughts about this i remember thinking mark driscoll made calvinism cool right um for about 
30 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> but he did. He also really made Mark Driscoll cool. Yeah. About, I, I mean, it was it was some slick marketing, but but I, I like the way you said it. It didn't cost me anything. Right. Um, and I think that's part of it was it was really good branding at a time when um, the movement was able to capitalize on it. And there were there were some people that really believed it. What we're finding now by those that are abandoning that view is that whenever the cool wore off, right. then they're looking for a new party to go join, and they no longer want to be. They no longer want to uphold the doctrines that they're all down the street of the deconstruction party. Oh. And so, <laughs> no, but oh we're, man, I hope that's not true. I know, me too. I'm I'm being a little sarcastic. So, but I do think if you're if you're 30 years old or if you're a younger guy. Um, set up now you know the 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 willingness to be um if not mocked then certainly set aside uh overlooked yeah not um not treated as serious you i don't i don't i don't hope that that is the end but if it is so be it and resolve to just be faithful before the lord and not play into the the actual definition of fundamentalist here not not play into being anti-intellectual not you know actually embodying the trope but being okay with the fact that if they throw that label at you um and you're disregarded or not taken seriously so be it yeah Uh, i think our most of our forebears in the faith uh, at least in the early 20th century they had to be okay with that yeah but um that sounds like a great word to end on. Do you have anything else you want to add to the subject? Um, for, for particularly for uh, my fellow churchmen, I am not uh, an elder of Christ the King Church. So if I can just give a word to the regular guys and and girls who are in churches, um, this when you're raising up your kids, I know there can be a little bit of fear as you as you try to teach them about the world that uh, you don't want to be. Uh, bomb shelter, homeschooling, anti-world guy or girl. And I had to put to death my concern long ago with that and just accept the fact that it is good to be faithful and to ask God to bless that faithfulness, to seek to be obedient to Christ and to ask him to bless that obedience. And so if you're working a job, raising kids, getting married, already married, and you're just trying to wrap your mind around the fact that you might not be taken seriously as a Christian, just know that God can and will bless such normal, simple obedience, and you don't have to sit at the cool kids' table. 